This show remains listener-supported. If you enjoy the conversation that follows or any in the archives, take a few moments to visit thepermaculturepodcast.com support to find out how you can make a one-time donation or become a recurring supporter. Veranergia Pacifica and the Permaculture Podcast are partnering together again this year to give away a permaculture design course at their farm in Costa Rica. Find complete details and how to enter at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash Costa Rica. Would you like to reach thousands of people with more information about your business, class, or service? Consider partnering with the podcast. For more information, contact me directly at 717-827-6266 or by sending me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm your host, Scott Mann. With smartphones, tablets, and other always-on, always-connected devices at our fingertips, finding a piece of information becomes easier and easier if we have a few keywords to search for. When it comes to a subject as off the well-trod path as permaculture, how can someone find this information? As practitioners, what outlets do we have to share these ideas with our more mainstream friends or family? Of all the media available, I think the least expensive and most accessible are magazines. For that reason, as of late, I've had an interest in wanting to get up to date on the latest recurring permaculture periodicals. So today, Robin Rosenfeld sits down to talk about her Australian-produced but globally available magazine, PIP. She designed this from the ground up to be a complete sensory experience that covers a wide range of practical subjects in every issue. She shares with us a variety of thoughts on permaculture in Australia, what it's like to distill down practical advice to the length of an article, why a magazine means so much to her as a way to share this information, and how you can contact her if you would like to contribute your words to an upcoming issue. Enjoy this conversation with Robin, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Robin, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to Pip Magazine? So my background, as far as publishing is concerned, was I started out as a photographer and travelled a lot and took photos of people and places and and then I got into writing and then I helped edit some magazines and I edited a magazine called Sustain Magazine, which was a local publication to where I live and then that folded after some time and yeah I kind of looked around and realized that in Australia we didn't have an actual permaculture magazine and there was a permaculture magazine 10 years prior to that but there had been a bit of a gap there since then so my permaculture background was just I've always had an interest in gardening and a love of nature and you know as a child we used to go and spend you know a couple of weeks going and camping out in the bush, as we say in Australia, like out in the by the beach and away from everything. And I think from there and from just gardening as a kid with my father, I always had that interest. And then I started getting into permaculture by reading books and just meeting other like-minded people. And, yeah, so then I – and it was also that I started – I'd had children and it just seemed like a good – opportunity to bring my passion and love of growing food and permaculture with my love of editing. So I started as a photographer and then I'd write articles and I'd be trying to pitch them to magazines, whereas this way it was like I could have this great magazine full of all the things I'm interested and passionate about and make it exactly how I wanted it. So it was actually really a great combination. 
And so you took all that experience then and launched this new Australian permaculture magazine. Yeah, I did. So I'd had a bit of experience staying magazine on basically how it sort of works, putting together a magazine, and especially at that grassroots level. You know, I wasn't working for some big international magazine in a big office somewhere. It was a very small publication and I learned how you can just make it happen. You don't need to have a big publishing house to do it. You can just start working on it, come up with the ideas and get it printed. And and also just prior to going to print, I did a crowdfunding campaign. So that was really great because it was an opportunity to call out to all the people in the permaculture community to say, look, if you know, you're interested in this, if you are, donate a little bit of money. And it wasn't a lot, but it was a lot of people giving a little bit and in return they became subscribers. And, yeah, it was really good because not only did it help me get that first print run, but it also meant I realised that there was this huge audience out there who were really keen for the magazine to happen. And when did you start, Pip? Well, the first issue came out in 2014 in March. So that was the official launch of it, but obviously I probably started, well, the idea came to me uh, about 2011, but I was pregnant at the time with my third child, so I didn't have a lot of time, as you can probably imagine at that point, to launch into anything. So it was just an idea that I had in my head for a few years and would just work on when I had the odd bit of spare time here and there. And then as I got a little bit more time, by a little bit, I mean not a great deal, but when I had a little bit more, I could. I started actually sitting down and working on making it happen. And so then why the choice to do something like a regular periodical in a magazine format as opposed to maybe like an edited book that you could compile different articles from? Why did you choose this format to go forward? I think there's something really beautiful about magazines that they come out regularly. They're just short little snippets of information that is more accessible to people, I think. Like you have magazines lying around in cafes and people share magazines and it's much more accessible to the general public. Whereas to go out and buy a book on something, you've got this thick book to get through. I think people need to already be very interested in that topic to get the book. Whereas I think the beauty of a magazine is you can just have a little article. And I think nowadays people are less and less able to really or not able to but less interested maybe in really getting into a book whereas a a short magazine article people can pick it up and read it and and I think also with the magazine and the style of the magazine like I've really made a it's really important the design aspect of the magazine that it it looks beautiful and it's got beautiful photography it's really well laid out so that it's appealing to anyone so anyone might pick it up and there might be some article that interests them, but then there's also these other articles which can open people up to new ideas and suggest things they might not have thought of before. So, yeah, I think I just like that. It's the more casual nature of a magazine. Like a book can take years to put together and get it out there, whereas a magazine you can do more regularly. So what is your turnaround time for each issue? Is it a matter of just a couple of months or are you planning out long, long in advance? Well, I started off doing two a year. So originally I thought I'd do four and then I just realised that that would be a bit too much to try and do all that on my own, which I was doing on my own in the beginning. So when it was two a year, I just focused on one, got it out, and then I thought about the next one and got it out. Now we're doing three a year. So, yeah, I'm basically working on one at a time, but I'm putting up ideas and some articles are coming in for the future issues. 
so yeah it's a sort of four monthly process but it all has to be ready you know a couple of months before it actually comes out to go through the the editing and design and proofing and printing and distribution you need to be a bit advanced with that and then yeah but yeah once you get into quarterlies or bi-monthlies or monthlies you really need to be have it all planned out and be very much on top of all that well in advance in your role as the publisher and editor, do you like that control and flexibility, the ability to move from two issues to three and then kind of work with your audience to find out what they're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great to have that flexibility to just make a decision. You know, you don't have to get a board of people to all agree on it and, you know, if you want to change something. I mean, I've got, I've got a team of people. We all work together and come up with ideas together. But, yeah, you can really just make decisions and you're not beholden to anyone you don't have to follow someone else's rules who might be you know have some other motive behind it so yeah I think it is good in that sense and I think sometimes when you do have too many like a board or something like that where you've all got to agree it can slow down those changes sometimes it's one of the things that I think about in this space as a podcaster and independent media, there's a line that somebody gave me years ago that kind of coincides with that thought of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, that we reach a point where we have to ship something and forget it. And I find that that really allows for a lot of experimentation too, because you can change the format of something or how, at least like from the podcast perspective, whether I want to do something conversational or more question and answer oriented, and then put some pieces together, get them out there. And then as the feedback comes in, determine what the next steps are, which is a lot different from being in a place where you have to be regimented in each choice that you make along the way. Yeah, and you've got to follow someone else's plan that may have been written years ago and might not be relevant anymore. You can change and move it as you go along. And that's one of the things that I was wondering about for folks, because in North America, our primary publications are Permaculture Design Magazine and then Permaculture Magazine North America. And with Permaculture design magazine, they're more focused on a particular topic with each issue, whereas Permaculture Magazine North America is more general. And I was wondering what kind of an approach are you taking with each of the issues of PIP? Well, I guess it's a bit of a mixture of both. So we we have our regular sections, so things like permaculture plant, permaculture animal, eat your weeds, save your seeds, things like that. And we have regular sections such as grow, build, eat, nurture, permaculture aid, make, design, profiles. So we have those, but then we have the features and we tend to have a bit of a theme that runs through the features, which can be quite loose in some issues and tighter in others. But then we still have those regular sections which look at all aspects of permaculture. So for the issue that's which is coming out next week, which has just been delivered, we had a bit of a focus on seaweed and the kind of watery side of permaculture you might say so looking at seaweed and the different uses of that and then we're also looking at aquaponics natural swimming pools and then we've also got things like fire baths and and we've also got an article on silver perch which is a i'm not sure if that's a fish in the u.s but it's a fish that's quite a useful fish for having in dams and aquaponics and things like that So, yeah, we have a theme, but we're not too structured and strict around that theme. It's just a general theme to tie it together. And then, like, so the one previous we talked about goats. So there were a few articles about goats, 
but then the rest of it was on a general topic. And then we had one about chickens and one about bees and so it's a bit of both really. And with that idea of, you know, themes and regular articles, are you focused primarily on permaculture and what's happening in Australia? Or are you also looking at the worldwide movement? Well, both really. I mean, a lot of what we look at are practical things that you can implement into your life. So it doesn't really make much difference where you live. So, for example, you know, how to build your own fire bath. I mean, you can do that anywhere. We've got one on homebrew beer, so making your own beer in a sustainable way. Food forests, alternative economies, crop rotation articles, straw bale building. So, yeah, it's very much applicable. And then some things are about people in Australia, so profiles about people. But, I mean, often they're people who are quite well-known internationally. Like, you know, we have people like, David Holmgren, Robin Francis, Rosemary Morrow, Robin Clayfield. A lot of people writing for the magazine or featuring in the magazine, their message is an international message really. So, yeah, it has a slight Australian tinge to it, but it's very much applicable to anywhere you live. Do you find that your ability to draw on so many folks who are well-known to the permaculture community as a whole comes from the tight-knit nature of the Australian permaculture community? Yeah, and I guess because Australia is the home of permaculture, where it came from originally, yeah, there are a lot of people here who have been practising it since the beginning and who have been involved and, and they love being part of the magazine and being able to communicate their ideas as well and their knowledge. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things for me coming from the United States and kind of the space that I sit in, having run this show for now seven years in a day as of the time when we're speaking. And I've noticed that it seems like the permaculture community in North America is kind of diverging and we're getting a very much different regional approaches and understandings. Like there are lots and lots of books coming out on permaculture, but it's from folks all over the country. And we might not necessarily know each other, and there are more classes coming out and convergences. And so it seems like we have little pockets of practitioners all over the country, some of whom do know each other and speak to each other and others who don't. And I just wonder if that's a kind of an outgrowth of the population in the United States, as well as kind of like our broad geographic diversity. Well, I guess, I mean, we've got quite a broad geographic diversity, and I guess I mean, for me, I feel like I am connected with people all over the country, but that's partly my role as the editor of Pit Magazine, that I'm connecting with everyone all over the country. But I think people are aware of each other, even if they're not necessarily connecting physically or on the phone. I think through social media, people from all different aspects, all different parts of the country are connecting. And, yeah, I'm sure there are people out there who aren't connected with other people working on their own. And I kind of felt like when I started the magazine, one of the roles for the magazine was to connect all these people so that you might be, you know, in the north of Australia, out in the desert somewhere or in the tropics or wherever, working away on something, but you can feel connected to someone down in Tasmania in the south and you can read, oh, they're doing something quite similar to me. And, yeah, it's about, and, I mean, it's also internationally, I mean, you can read an article in a magazine from across the world and see, oh, yeah, that, that's a great idea what they're doing. Maybe I could try that in 
my community or my design. So I think although there's the geographic distance, I think we can, especially in this day and age, we can still be so connected, especially through Facebook and Instagram and you can keep in touch. And then through magazines, different magazines, you can read about what people are doing in different parts of the world. You get that exposure to a lot of different voices through the different ways that all of this different media connects us. Yeah, definitely. In your place as the publisher and editor of PIP, are there certain trends that you're seeing emerging within the permaculture community? Um, Well, I feel that there is a lot of interest growing in permaculture because I think there's a big interest in people living more sustainably and people are becoming aware that there are some major issues concerning the planet and to do with, you know, that are going to affect the way that we're all living. And, you know, we need to start thinking about how we're living and what we're doing. So I think that there is definitely a growing interest and permaculture is part of that. People, are, they might not necessarily understand exactly what permaculture is or what it's about, but they like the, the sound of it and they like the idea of it. I feel there's a lot of people coming in with not necessarily a lot of knowledge and experience, but who are passionate and who want to learn more and want to know more. And that's a nice place where a magazine fills a role where if someone's at their bookstore or sees one on the rack, and if there's a particular article or something that speaks to them that's on the cover, they grab it, they read it, and they can dig in a little bit more then and find more of those voices and materials that help them learn more about permaculture and then get involved yeah exactly and i think you know to maybe invest forty dollars on a book that might be a bit dense you know for about ten dollars you can pick up a magazine and just have a flick through read a short article while you're having your breakfast or something and then you are exposed to other things that other topics that are related but you may not have thought to pick up a magazine specifically about that And I think also that's the thing with going with the print magazine over digital. I mean, I think a lot of people say, you know, why are you getting into print publications at this point in, you know, where we're at in society? But I think we're all so overloaded with digital content. I mean, often people are sitting on their computers throughout the day for work and they've got to go on the computer for this, that and the other reason. And I think a magazine creates a really nice alternative to that. So you can actually sit down at the table, the kitchen table or out in the garden and flick through a magazine and you're not on a screen again, it's a nice break to actually be looking at paper. And, and like with the magazine, it's, it's a beautiful paper. It's a matte paper and it feels nice to touch and it's, you know, it's a whole kind of aesthetic experience as well, not just looking at another article on the screen. I certainly appreciate that because it's one of the things about doing this work is that it is a full day in front of a screen. And by the time it's done, being able to have a magazine or a book in my bag that I can pull out and read and be able to choose whether I'm going to read something that just takes a little bit of time or if I want to dig into something deeper by then, you know, after reading an article, I can pull out my book. And I know it's one of the things for me about like this show, choosing to keep it audio so that people don't have to sit in front of a screen and watch a video or something like that. They can listen to it while they're on the train or in the car or doing something else. They can just have it in their ears and be looking at the real world. (laughs) 
Was that choice to go with print, was that a difficult decision? Or from the way that you just laid it out, it just seemed like the best way to go? Yeah, well, for me, no, I was definitely going to do print. I wouldn't have done digital. I mean, for me, I, I love the whole package. I love making a publication and, you know, for each issue we have an artist design the cover and we have beautiful illustrations inside and photos and the paper and everything was really important in the processing of the magazine, apart from the content. Of course, the content was important. But, yeah, for me it was definitely about creating a beautiful physical product that people can sit and read and look at the digital wouldn't have fulfilled that for me i would have just felt like another thing on the screen so you were consciously designing like every aspect of the magazine from the paper that you chose to the way that the print would look to your cover like all of those were part of not only the delivery of of the magazine but also like the aesthetic of it and the way that it felt in hand I kind of knew before I started exactly how I wanted it to look and feel and and I think it is really important. I think a beautiful magazine will be picked up by lots of people and you'll attract not just the hardcore permies but you'll get people who just like the look of the magazine and and have a little bit of interest in they might see, oh, you know, how to forage seaweed or how to grow raspberries or something like that and then they can experience all the other aspects as well. As you've been putting together the magazine and asking people to write for you and submit articles, has there been anything really interesting or surprising that stood out to you through the process? With the magazine, rather than it being just on permaculture as a landscape, as a you know land use system, it's been the interest from the... I mean, yeah, people want to know about growing, and growing food seems to be the main area that people are interested in. But they're also really interested in all aspects of permaculture. So looking at permaculture as a holistic design system for your whole life. So in the last issue, we had an article about how to knit a beanie, which on the surface might not seem like permaculture, but it does align with you know, the permaculture principles of making your own things and not going out and buying stuff from, you know, that might have been made in China and sent over to you. So, yeah, I think the fact people are just really interested in all aspects of it and they want to know practical things that they can put into their lives, which I guess wasn't really a surprise. I did know that people are really loving about the magazine. That practical aspect really stands out as something that people are interested in? Yeah, people want to be able to read an article and get something that they can take out of it and use in their everyday lives. That immediate kind of takeaway, which points to what we've kind of been touching on throughout this conversation about the difference between a magazine and that short form article versus all the theory and practice that we might find in a book. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes I kind of look at it as you know, sometimes I see the magazine as almost like trying to take the designer's manual by Bill Mollison, but breaking it down into these practical, short, easy to read, easily accessible articles. And I'm not saying it's, you know, I'm drawing on the designer's manual and that's exactly what I'm doing. But when you have a book like the designer's manual, for instance, which is a thick book and it can be quite complex and there's a lot of text, which some people, to begin with, just that can just be way too much people don't know where to start whereas if you can break it down into short articles that are really simple it's a few pages it doesn't take too long to read the information's there 
there's some images to go with it. It just makes it more accessible and easy to read, I think. Does going through that process and getting articles that are submitted to you into a useful, practical form, is that something that takes a lot of work on your part as the editor? Or are you getting a lot of material that's just kind of ready to go? Both, really. Well, when I started, because it was very low budget, I didn't have any budget to pay writers. I didn't really have any budget at all. So I was kind of asking people who are really passionate about what they're doing, would you like to share this in an article in the magazine? So a lot of those people weren't writers. So they knew what they were talking about and they were experts at what they were doing. But the actual getting that into a written article that was easy to read and follow was tricky. So yeah, in the beginning, I had a lot more work in that sense, and it could be <laughs> quite time-consuming because I don't know how many articles. There's 20 or 30 articles in a magazine, or maybe not that many, maybe 20, and you've got to go through each one and not only read it and make sure it makes sense, but then you've also got to check for full stops and all of that sort of thing, although I have a proofreader who does the final check of all that. And now I have a sub-editor. I've had a sub sub-editor too who helps with that process. But, yeah, now I've got you know, I have a small budget to pay a small amount to writers. So I'm tending to get people now who do know how to write. And also I'm getting people who regularly can write articles. So, yeah, as time goes on, it's becoming a smoother process. But, yeah, there are the occasional articles that the information is beautiful. It just needs a little bit of tightening up to make it easily readable and understandable. If someone wanted to reach out to you and get involved or submit an article, are you open to submissions? Is there a formal process for folks to do that? Yeah, definitely. So we have, I think they're on the website now, we've got the contributor guidelines, editorial guidelines that you can look at. And also if you're interested in writing, you can send a pitch to editorial at pipmagazine.com.au. So that's basically an outline of what you're going to talk about in the article, what the article's about and the basic set of topics that you're going to cover. And then we look at, you know, what next coming issues are, where it might fit in, and then we sort of talk about how many words and what else, you know, the actual specifics of it. But, yeah, the best way is to get in touch with it, an outline or a pitch for the article that you've got in mind. But, yeah, we love hearing from people and getting different ideas from all over the place. As we've been talking about this, in the back of my head, I wanted to ask, does PIP stand for anything? It doesn't, actually. So it actually, it's symbolic. So in permaculture, you don't get your pip out of your fruit and throw it away. You save your pip and then you plant your pip and then you grow a new tree and which grows new fruit, which you then eat and you have the pip again. So it's sort of representing that closed system nature of permaculture. I mean, I did consider making it stand for, you know, people in permaculture or permaculture in practice, but... I just felt like none of those titles really captured what PIP was about, whereas I think as a symbol it was better. Yeah, I like that a lot more because it was, I for a long time thought that it was permaculture in practice or, you know, permaculture in principles. It's just none of those quite rang true as to what the magazine was about. No, I can understand that because I think that the more that we go down this road and learn more about permaculture, because this is you know, seven years that I've been running the show and since I took my permaculture design course, that the more that I talk to people and the more that I learn, the more broad and holistic it is. And we can all have our own particular niche if we want, 
or we can engage in the community and be part of this broader movement. So, yeah, I think that what you say about having a niche or a niche, we say niche in Australia, um, yeah, that people do have their niche and their thing that they're good at. And I think it's great to bring that to permaculture rather than everyone feeling like they've got to go out and grow food and create permaculture-designed landscapes. For some people, that's not what they do. And like for you, you've done your PDC and created a podcast and you know, I did a PDC and started a magazine and someone else might start up a cafe or a CSA or whatever it is that they're good at. So I think that's a really important thing to think that permaculture can be interpreted in any aspect of your life, I think. And it's something that I'm reminded by with, as we mentioned, the designer's manual, there's chapter 14 that lays out all of these different things that we need to accomplish to develop a new culture or a new society. And that as we continue to grow and move permaculture forward, there are so many places for people to come into this and interact and do what it is that they're good at. Yeah, definitely. Are you seeing things like that emerge in Australia? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's beyond the growing side of things. It's, I mean, the way people are building their houses, but also the way communities are connecting with one another. So I think often people think, oh, you get into permaculture, you move to the country and get some land. But I actually see that in the cities is where the really strong community sharing aspects sometimes appear because people are living close to each other. They haven't got a lot of room, so they need to share, like have a community garden or start growing on a shared verge somewhere, like the land outside the property. So I think... Definitely, it's growing in that sense of building community. And I think, I mean, that sort of community does exist in the country. And I live quite a long way from any major city. And there's community in the sense of in the towns, but in our larger community, like the local region, sometimes it's hard for us to really connect with one another because, you know, the towns are half an hour's drive apart from each other. So, and sometimes, you know, an hour away, which they're people that I'm friends with, we're like-minded, we're interested in the same things, but you've got to drive an hour to go to their place to do something or to have a joint activity. So I think sometimes the cities are stronger in that sense because there are so many people in a small area. And particularly where I live, it's it's very unpopulated. There's not a lot of people, and, which makes it beautiful. But yeah, as far as having a lot of like-minded people close by, there's not the same volume of numbers of people. Right. And I'm thinking for, you know, myself and many others along our east and west coasts here in the United States where we are in cities and that access to large swaths of green space are either protected because there's some kind of a park or they're owned as farmland and the different challenges that that presents. And is there much just open space that could possibly be converted into, I mean, some of the areas that we see being used, it might be, you know, the grass along the side of a train line or it might be a city park that's just lawn that they dig up a corner of it and turn it into a garden. Or sometimes it's someone's vacant block that's just been sitting there vacant for years and then someone finds who the owner is and starts growing food on it. And it's fine. Yeah, it seems to be that, 
in the capital cities here that there are often little places like that. And another great place in Sydney is it's on an old bowling green. So the bowling green has the, there's no no one using it anymore. And now that's been turned into this amazing market garden where they also run courses and have yoga classes and I think there's a cafe there as well. And yeah, so it's those marginal spaces which have been taken up and used. So I don't know if there are less of those where you are on the east coast. Yeah, for us it seems to be that it's it's a reclamation of, of abandoned lots and going through tax sales and things like that to find spaces that are available. It's a little here and a little there. And rooftops too seem to be getting used. Yes, especially in places like New York City. Yeah, so I guess it's that, that thing of trying to find those little bits of land to try and reclaim and make useful and productive. With what you were saying about the capital cities, is there a political will in Australia for this kind of work? Yes, I think so. Well, some, a small amount. So a lot of the politicians have no interest. and But in certain areas, there is a bit of like certain inner city areas, there is an interest in it and support of it. But I think mostly, probably not. The politicians aren't particularly interested. So it's a lot of private citizens and local organisations taking this kind of action? Yeah, mostly. There are some programs in certain areas, especially in Melbourne, sort of inner city areas where they're quite progressive and the councils run free courses in growing and gardening and they have composting waste workshops and they have programs where they're collecting the waste. So there is a little bit of a movement towards that, but yeah, I wouldn't say it's really well supported all over. It does sound like we still have a long road ahead of us wherever we are in getting these kinds of ideas implemented. I think so. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, it's so obvious what's going on, but, yeah, the politicians seem to keep their head in the sand and just try and deny it, which is quite frightening, really. (laughs) Well, Robin, we've kind of covered a little bit of everything in our conversation today from what you're seeing in the practice of permaculture in Australia about Pip Magazine and not only the content, but also how and who is writing for you. But one thing that I have that I wanted to ask about that before we begin to draw things to a close is where can people find the magazine and what countries are you distributing the print version in? You can subscribe online. So our website is pipmagazine.com.au so that's pipmagazine.com.au so you can subscribe from anywhere in the world and we ship worldwide so that makes it easier we are looking to have distribution overseas but that's something we haven't quite got to yet but yeah basically the best way to do it is to subscribe online and then we just send the magazine out to you when they come out and also there's the digital version for those that prefer digital Yeah, so it's available on iTunes and you can subscribe directly through there. So you really are making it accessible once people find you, wherever they are, they can have an issue delivered to their inbox or their mailbox. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we just send them out. And the subscribers always get them sent out first, so you get the first copies of the magazine. And then for folks who are in Australia, they can find the magazine on the magazine rack or in the bookstore? 
So, yeah, it's available at newsagents. It's available at stockists, different independent shops around the country. We also do have some independent shops overseas. We just recently got one in California. So, I mean, also, if people are interested in getting it stocked in a shop, we can do that too. So just get in touch if you're interested and we can work something out. And as I always like to do to end an interview, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Well, as we were discussing earlier, I think with the magazine, it's very much been for me a matter of designing it into my life design. So not only into the property design, but into making it fit in with your whole life. So not sort of trying to do something that burns you out and stresses you out, although it does do that at times, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. But, um, yeah, the way I've sort of chosen to do the magazine is to I work from home. So we started in the spare room and now we have a barn that we've converted into a workspace. So we lived in that for a couple of years while we did up the house and now that's our office. So, yeah, just having that life design enables me to look after my kids and see them off in the morning and be here when they get home and run the business and then have time to go and do some gardening and water the garden or and eat from the garden at lunchtime, which is even better. So, yeah, I think permaculture is land design but also life design. That we can take those ideas and apply them as much to the way that we live as the way that we make use of the land? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you, Robin, for joining me today and sharing really a little bit about everything. I really have enjoyed our time together and getting to know more about you and your work with Pip. And thanks, Scott. Thanks for having a chat. It's been good to talk about everything. And that was Robin Rosenfeld. Find out more about Pip Magazine and pick up issue number nine at pipmagazine.com.au or by the link in the show notes. What I like about the conversation today with Robin is that her work is a reminder of how, with the will and a little bit of knowledge, we can make something new. Robin took her experiences as a photographer and from her time in the publishing industry to launch this magazine. I look at my own life of how I took some time spent as a radio DJ and a decade in IT to create this podcast, blending together the skills from different worlds to make something new. What skills and knowledge do you have that you could forge together to bring something truly unique into the world. If you'd like to talk about that or anything else, feel free to give me a call, 717-827-6266, send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write me a letter, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you'd like to leave feedback about this episode, Drop a comment in the show notes, or by leaving a review on your favorite podcast site, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or Podcast Addict. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. From here, the next interview is with Eric Tonsmeyer, where he shares the latest research on drawing down carbon and reducing the impacts of climate change. Until then, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and your community.